Welcome back to another episode of Be Our Guest here on Musical Theater Radio. I am your host, as always, Jean-Paul Yovanoff. It's funny, but when I book a guest on the show, I obviously do know a little bit about them. I, I wouldn't ask them if I didn't. But once I started doing a little bit more research into today's guest, I realized that I'd seen one of their world premieres in Toronto, that I'd been singing one of their songs for years without even realizing it. I'm looking forward to talking about this and a bunch of other things with today's guest, Paul Gordon. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for, for having me on. No problem. So I start off the show the same way every time because we want to know who Paul is. So I'd like to get the 30-second bio of Paul. Wow, 30 seconds. Um, I grew up playing in rock and roll bands. I wanted to be Elvis Costello. And um, and then, you know, my love for musical theater like really hit me. I, I was a pop songwriter for a lot of publishing companies, had some hit songs, but my heart was always in musical theater. So I transitioned into that, met John Caird. We did Jane Eyre, went to Broadway, and I've been writing musicals ever since. Very nice. You still have seven seconds. Is there anything else you want to tell us about you that nobody oh, else knows? I, I have a feeling th the rest will come out during the course <laughs> of this interview. Okay, that seems fair. All right. Now, so let's take it back to the beginning. Were you always into musical theater, even though you said you were into pop? But was, was there an affinity for it when you were younger growing up? Or is that something you discovered later? Yeah, so, so my parents um, always had the, the musicals of their day on, which were South Pacific, West Side Story, My Fair Lady. So that was in one ear. And the other ear, ear was the Beatles and the Beach Boys. So I feel like between West Side Story, Brian Wilson and Lennon and McCartney, I had this sort of I had this education in songwriting and and what and what songs actually were. So those were sort of my roots, the music I grew up loving. Yeah, and, and I hear that so often is if their parents had the like those exact CDs. I mean CDs, LPs. Let's be LPs yes. at the time, and and listen to those and and helped influence them. Did you have a special one that you liked that that your parents had? Yeah, West Side Story was was certainly my favorite and and was just mesmerizing. And, you know, I, I, I just I, the, that score has just been in my soul for for my entire life um, and had a tremendous influence on me. Very nice. Very nice. So did you go after you went to high school and after high school, did you go into the arts or did you have a different? Uh, so basically, you know, I, I, I you know, from probably junior high and high school, I was in bands. So, you know, where my parents were always wanting me to get a degree so that I had something to fall back on. Yeah. I was very rebellious and I was not, I was not interested in that idea. I did go to a couple of colleges that I quickly dropped out of um, to pursue my career as, you know, being in a band and wanting to be the Beatles or Elvis Costello or something like that. And, um, you know, I did that for quite a few years and I played, you know, hundreds of gigs with various bands and, and, and performed and lugged my instruments to gigs and called all my friends and had them try to come to my gigs so I could make enough money to pay, you know, for, for the door or, or so forth. And, you know, but I'd always had this sort of love for musical theater while that was going on. So, you know, I was writing musicals that nobody saw um, <laughs> on the side while I was trying to make it as, an, as a solo artist 
And at the same time, trying to have a career as a songwriter that I ended up having. I, I was signed originally by EMI um, and then later went to Warner Brothers and left Warner Brothers, went to Chapel, then Chapel, no, sorry, Warner Brothers bought Chapel. So I was suddenly at Warner Chapel. And then I left Warner Brothers and went to Geffen and then MCA bought Geffen. And then I was at MCA. It was all very confusing to me. So, but, but that was at a time where I was looking at the songwriting world and I had success, you know, I was making money yep. and, um, but I wasn't happy. I, I wasn't feeling satisfied, you know, in a three minute, 20 second song. And, you know, what was I writing about after all these years? Like, you know, another breakup, like I was so sick of myself, you know, I had nothing more to say yep. until I picked up the novel Jane Eyre and went, Hey, I wonder if I can make a musical out of this, you know, because I'd seen Les Mis and, and I went, wow, you can make a musical out of a, you know, public domain novel and, and have it turn out like that and work with those people. Like, wouldn't that be great? So I just started working on Jane Eyre on my own and um, like had no idea that it would lead where it led. And, and that's like after I mentioned at the beginning that I'd been singing your songs without even knowing it. And it was the um, the Peter Cetera, Amy Grant song. Oh, yeah. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. That I wrote with Bobby Caldwell. That was that was fun. That was during the heyday of, you know, you as a writer, you could write songs and get it to an artist that you really loved. I loved Peter Cetera's voice. Oh, um, we were originally going to get the, the, the song to Chicago. Then he quit Chicago. And both Chicago and Peter Cetera wanted the song. And we decided to go with Peter Cetera, which we're glad we did. And then, of course, it was a duet with Amy Grant, which was her first crossover hit. Yeah, I know. Um, and that was exciting. <laughs> and, and in my research for you, I don't know if you know this, but in February 2020, uh, 34 years after its release, it was listed on Billboard's pop music list of top 25 love duets. Oh, I did not know that. That's yeah. that's oh, that's very heartening to hear. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, I looked at that's very cool. So uh, congratulations on that. Thank you. Get you, Thank but you. <laughs> that's awesome. It's that's something awesome. to know. So let's let's talk about Jane Eyre. So when did that first idea you said after you saw Les Mis, maybe? Um, yeah, I saw early? Les Mis, and, I, and after Les Mis, I was in. I'd already written a musical. I'd written a musical that we'll talk about later called Greetings from Venice Beach. That was very much like Rent. Um, so it was a rock musical, and it all took place on the Venice Boardwalk. I'm still working on it. We'll talk about it. But this was the first sort of classical musical that I that I wanted to tackle. And it was and I really just did it as an experiment. I, I had no intention of actually making it a musical. I just wanted to see, could I take a novel and musicalize it like mm -hmm. they did for Les Mis? I just wondered. Yeah. And so I sort of took a year off from writing pop songs and and I just started working on it on my own, having no idea who I would ever get it to or how I would ever do it. And I ended up using a singer to play Jane named Sally Dworsky, who is a pop singer that I that I had a close friend of mine, but also a pop singer, sang backgrounds with Don Henley and some other major acts, fantastic singer. But for whatever reason, she was also the understudy for Eponine in the L.A. company that happened to be in L.A. at the time. Um, the, the production that I saw. So Sally was my Jane on the demo. And then she slowly started getting people in the cast to come into my studio and sing various roles on the demo. 
And eventually Anthony Crivello mm-hmm. um, came in and he came in at the very end and, and he literally played the part of a servant, which was all I had left at that time. But he was very friendly with John Caird, who also happened to be in town. He was in LA for the production and he was renting a house in Westwood. And Anthony said, well, let me send this to my friend, John and see if he's interested. So I get a call from John a few days later and who I'm vaguely aware of. I'm more aware of the name Trevor Nunn than John Caird at this time mm-hmm. in my life. I don't, I don't know why I was kind of glib with him when he called and he went, wow, this is, this is really good essentially, but I, I, I think you should make it in the 20th century. And I think you should put it in New England because you're not British. And, and, it's, and, and some of your lyrics are not really period. Mm-hmm. And I said, no. I don't want to do that. And when I think back on that now, I, I, that was very ballsy. And, and I don't know that I would say it again today because I might have lost him in that moment. And he, there was a little pause and he just went, all right, well, why don't you come over to my house, you know, on Saturday or whenever, and, and we'll talk about it. So I go over to his house that he's renting in Westwood and we're sitting in the backyard and, and I've got my script. And he's already heard the music, my demos, and he's going through the script with a red pencil mm-hmm. and he's correcting my spelling and like why I had a computer and I didn't use spell check to this day. I have no idea. <laughs> and, and then he's going, this is not 19th century. You know, this is not British. And he's just like, you know, like a school teacher, like reading out everything. And I'm going, this guy hates me. He hates everything. <laughs> and then when he's done, he goes, look, I don't know how you know how to do this, but you do. And um, and I would be, I would like to be the book writer and the director of this, if if you're willing. And I went, well, yeah, yes, 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 you are. Um, and then he suggested, he said, well, you know, but I might want to call in another lyricist. And he mentioned the lyricist of Limis, um, the gentleman that did the English lyrics. And I went, that would be fine but why don't you just give me one shot? Like, give me your notes, what you think I could improve and let me go back. And then if you still wanna bring in another lyricist, I'm good. So, you know, he, he, he sends me away. I come back to him. I literally write, I think um, two of the, like the end, Brave Enough for Love, which is one of the major songs in the show and, and Painting Her Portrait are like the two songs I write like in two days, just to try to impress him, to get him to work with me. And he does, you know, he likes what I'm writing. And that was how it started. Like this guy was getting like 50 cassettes a week from people wanting him to direct their musicals. He's arguably one of the most successful musical theater directors in the world. Um, And and I was just, I I just don't even know how it happened. And, And the weird thing is when I saw Les Mis, I went, God, like if I could only work with these people, what it would mean to me. And literally like 10 years later, I was on Broadway working with the director, the scenic designer and the costume designer. And it was just like, it's incredible. That's just still blows my mind. I don't know how that happened. Well, first, like I say, congratulations on that. Thank That's, you. it's incredible. I know when that happens and, and you, it's, it's the stories of just happenstance of you happen to, ha- you know, know this person who knows these people who comes in to do this, who suggests that it's just this weird yeah. little ball that you could never predict. 
Never. No, it's crazy. And in a way it feels unfair in some circumstances because it does seem to boil down to like, you know, if you know somebody who knows somebody and you're fairly talented, you know, you might get a break. But if you're even more talented and you don't know somebody, you might never get anywhere. And, you know, that's just sort of the frustrations of the arts and, and moving forward and how that happens or how it doesn't happen. So, yeah, I was lucky that I was in the right place at the right time and the right person heard my stuff and, and said, I want to work with you. And that was was crazy to me. But it's a great lesson for, for new creators to talk to everybody and get to know yeah. people and don't burn bridges, <laughs> like, yeah, like no, treat everyone, me. you know, un- unless they just, you know, unless they've done something really, really, really terrible, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, keep, I mean, keep there's everybody. no reason not to be kind anyway, even without looking after best interests for yourself. Yeah. But even if you, but even if you don't have that as your motivation, you know, be kind. Yeah. You know, with everybody, you don't know anybody's story. And, um, you know, uh, it, I, I've worked with so many artists that are so wonderful. And I love when people come back into my life that I've worked with 10 years ago and, you know, we're working on something new now and having a different adventure. It's all good. Yeah. Because you never know who knows who knows who. That's right. Right. It's, That's right. It may not be the person you check. Because I've done so many when I was in the business world, you know, when I was networking, it's, it's not important if the person you're talking to isn't, you know, your client or isn't good for you, you still treat them with respect because A, they deserve it, B, but yeah. B, you never know who they're going to know, right? And, and in right. this case, it's it's good. So absolutely great on you for, for, for talking to people and treating them well. So, so obviously, uh, John was impressed with what you wrote <laughs> when you came back yeah. to them. What was the next step after that? Now that the two of you were on the same you know, so, you know, it's interesting. Um, Les Mis was basically conceived and written when John and Trevor started working on it and they reworked it and made it the show that, that we know today. So Jane Eyre was similar in that the show existed. Now he was going to rewrite the book. So the, a lot of the, the first things that he had me do was that he just had ideas for different songs that I hadn't included. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the thing about John that I've learned all these years is that what, one of the things that makes John so brilliant is his attention to detail. He's very, very detail oriented. So what that meant was we overwrote um, the show in the first incarnation that we wrote together. You know, I think the first uh, reading that we did was at Manhattan Theater Club and it was probably three hours long, you know, the first time we heard it out loud. Yeah. Um, and, and my memory was that, you know, he had me write a lot of songs that we ended up cutting because it was like, Jane stops and sniffs a flower. And then I would write an entire song about that. And then we'd go to the next thing and it was like, well, that doesn't really move the story forward. So it's pretty song, but we don't need it. Yeah. So there was a lot of discovery and rediscovery. And I think John and I both learned a lot about how to musicalize a novel together. Again, because Les Mis was a much different circumstance. Mm-hmm. And, and, so, and so, you know, we, we had our production in Wichita, Kansas after Manhattan Theater Club, where we were like really out of the way of New York and LA. We really wanted to just be out of the the way of people watching our work at this point. We wanted to do some work on our own. We felt like we had done that. So we went to Toronto at the Royal Alexandra Theater, Mm -hmm. where likely you saw it. And 
And, you know, that was, that was just, you know, my first experience with a world-class production. So that was it. That was like the beginning of, I'd done musicals before, I've had little productions, and now here it was, like, this is a huge deal. We were viewed in the world press. So that was an incredible experience for me. And, um, and, and just, you know, cathartic because our, I, I'll never forget opening night of Jane Eyre. You know, we knew nobody in Canada, you know, it was like all strangers in the house yeah. and the house went crazy. Like it was my first experience going, oh my God, they love our show. So then the reviews came out the next day, but I only saw two reviews. The Globe and Mail came to my door of the hotel I was staying. Oh, wow. And then um, the, the, the Toronto Star, is that what, is that? Yes, yeah, probably. Um, came out in the evening. And mm -hmm. so the Toronto Star had a rave. It was like the greatest show ever, blah, blah, blah. The Globe and Mail is still to this day, I think the worst review I've ever read about any one of my shows and me personally. Wow. So that was the first review I read and it was devastating. And it was devastating to me personally. I'd never had a review that was bad. Yeah. Um, I barely had any reviews. So, but the ones that I had were all pretty praiseworthy. And this was just like my first experience of they don't like me. And I, I it, it, it was really, it was really tough for me. Like I, like all the other reviews were great, and it just didn't matter because that one review that I latched onto that that was just so painful to me so that was a great experience of just growing a thicker skin and going this is your life dude like people are going to write about you and some are going to like you and some are not going to like you and i'll never forget what john said he said look you know if you read your reviews like be careful because you know if you if you believe the ones that say you're brilliant then you then you have to believe the ones that say you suck so like, you know, don't believe any of them. So I got, I got two pieces of advice, um, you know, from two people in, in the public eye that I was friendly with. One was Steven Schwartz and the other was Alanis Morissette. Okay. And they both tell, told me essentially the same thing, which is either don't read them or read them all at once. Alanis basically said, don't read them. Yeah. Um, but Steven coming from more of a place of musical theater said either don't read them or, or read them all at once. So then you get then you get the feel of what everybody says. And you're not just reading one review that says you're brilliant or you suck. Mm -hmm. And so that was really, really helpful. And and what I found is any like, you know, if 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 my show's already done what I've needed it to do, I don't read a review. Like I'll read a review if like I'm still working on it, I can learn something. But like once it's there, like what am I gonna learn if you don't like me? Like the show's frozen now or it's already there. Although truthfully, I, I still work on all of my shows. <laughs> as long as I'm on the earth, they're not done. Yeah. Re reviews are the bane of everyone's existence, a necessary evil that, you know, I hate when people ask me for my opinion on a show because it's a, it doesn't matter what I think because I'm not the same as you. So yeah. whatever I tell you, just, take it with a grain of salt and go see the show, which is more important. And I think the audience, how they react is the best um, review, right? You sit there and if they went crazy, that is probably closer to the truth than the negative or the super positive. It's Absolutely. Because what is a critic's role? Because I, I thought before this review, the critic's role was to tell the public what they were going to like. But then I learned, no, it's what the critic likes and they don't care because like the thing that blew my mind during that 
Toronto uh, Globe and Mail review is they never mentioned the audience. Like that was the whole thing for me. It was like the audience, they were sobbing at the end, they were on their feet, they were cheering. You would have thought the audience walked out after the first song, the way this review played. And then I think that I read something the other day that I think Mr. Sondheim had said, and and I'm going to, I'm not going to even try to paraphrase because it's something that I felt a long time. Most theater critics don't know music. You know, they're critiquing musicals and they don't know the first thing about music. And anybody who writes sophisticated music has a problem with that because, you know, sometimes you're not going to hear our music the first time. You know, it might take another listening or it might take the reprises at the end, or that's just the way it goes. Yeah. So, so when you have critics and, and, and I've been aware of major theater critics that know nothing about music based on their taste, um, uh, just embarrass themselves in the pages of prominent newspapers. Um, it's just, it, it is the bane of our existence. And especially now, because now we're living in an age where good reviews don't help you and bad reviews can still hurt you. Yeah. And that's, that, you know, uh, that, that's just uncanny. I mean, I'll never forget Ben Brantley's review of Honeymoon in Vegas. And like, that's the review all of us want. Like, that's it. Yeah. And it didn't help the show. And that was mind blowing. Like one of the greatest reviews for a musical ever written and it did not help the show. So critics do not help us now, no. um, but they can say we suck without knowing anything, or it's just their opinion we suck, and that's fine. Um, but there's but there's no answer, you know, um, there's no answering. I, I always wanted to start a publication among fellow artists called Critical Review, where artists review critics' reviews and say, well, this is a really smart review. Yeah. This is a review where the critic knew nothing. And and the internet has taken it to the next degree because everyone has the ability to post and be a critic. And and that's fine because everyone has their own opinion. But my problem is that people take these words as gospel now and and they clamor on. And this is true of not just theater, but of anything. Anything. If it's written down and we read it and it's an opinion, our first tendency psychologically is to believe it. Yeah. You know, without even, oh, well, that must be true. And then we move on to the next, you know, when we're doom scrolling on social media, it's like, oh, that happened. That's true. That's true. That, you know, it's just like our brain. It's crazy times. Yeah. I don't know if there's ever going to change, but it it is what it is. And and, and like you said, you have to just roll with it and take the good and the bad and take, you know, what you want out of it. Grow a thick skin. Exactly. You know, which is not easy. Not easy. No, it's not. But it's it's a necessary evil of our business. <laughs> yes, truly, truly, truly. So let, let, you you had it in Toronto. You had the world premiere, and then in two thousand, it got to Broadway. What happened in between that date? What changed? What what uh, progressed for it? So we we did the show in Toronto, and and I think we all felt like the show wasn't wasn't done yet. Um, we just felt like, I know that I felt like there was too much music, there was too much detail. We had, we ended up having an amazing session with Stephen Schwartz in New York. And we were in rehearsal studio somewhere, I don't remember which studio. And Stephen hadn't seen the show yet, but we'd given him a recording of, of, of one of the Toronto performances. 
And he literally went through the whole show with us and dramaturged the show and said what he thought, how he thought it should go and, and how he thought it would help us. And I would say we mostly, we mostly did what he asked us to do, not everything, but we mostly rewrote the show. We reopened the show in La Jolla and the show was much better. Um, but the problem was there were still too many opinions, too many cooks, too many people we were listening to. Yeah. And I think when we went to Broadway, that was, that was the moment we threw some of the baby out with the bathwater. That was the moment where we listened to too many people, went too far, but the show still wasn't trimmed down enough. And one of the, one of the mistakes I think our New York producers made is that in Toronto, I don't think you would remember, but there was this incredibly gorgeous John Napier set that he had designed that had creaky staircases and it was a single unit set. It was just beautiful I and nothing had to change. We had a few scrims that came down occasionally, but, but, the, but the emphasis on the show was on the music, the characters and the storytelling. And when we went to Broadway, the producers insisted that John Napier redesign the show and they put all of their attention and money and resources into a redesign that didn't need it to be shinier and brighter and glossier. And we didn't do the work on the show that we needed to do. And the show was still too long. And I'll never forget being in previews. And we had all that we had so much time in previews, but it was all dedicated to the carousel that was spinning this, this million dollar instrument wow. that really did this incredible thing where a window would come down in, in a circular pattern and the light would stay with it. And that really was an innovation and great. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, only lighting designers appreciated it and knew it. <laughs> Nobody else thought that that was anything new or interesting. Yeah. And, and, and when I went to John Carrot and, and, and at one moment in preview said, hey, look, that, that 20 seconds where they're singing there, we don't need that. Let's just go from that point to this point. And he went, no, we can't do that because it would take two weeks to reprogram the carousel to make that change. And that's when I knew it was all over. It was like, we can't yeah. cut the show down. We, we can't work on the show. Even though I've never been to Broadway, I know enough to know you got to work on your show. You got to work on the book and the score, yeah. not just the design. Um, nobody's going to, no, people may, may appreciate the design for the first, you know, 10 minutes. Um, and then, and then if you don't have a show, like, what do you got? Yeah. And we had a show, but, but it wasn't good enough yet. So, um, so that's what happened there. And then John and I have spent the next 20 years working on the show and now it's two hours and we have, we have relicensed the show with MTI nice. and we're hopefully going to launch some, you know, the gods willing some new stage versions of, of the new version of Jane Eyre, which I'm really excited about. That would be fantastic. That'd be awesome to see. Yeah. It sounds like producers and uh, critics have the same problem. <laughs> they, 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 they know what they know, but when they start getting involved in something that, yeah. Cause yeah. nobody comes out humming the, the window, you know? No, no, so. no nobody hums the sets. No. Um, and it, and, and the other crazy thing is that, you know, and, and you know, this from being in theater, you know, lighting gets like all the tech time and then, you know, music gets an hour and I keep going, they're not called lighticles. They're called musicals. Why aren't we spending time on the music? But it's true. You know, 
Go figure. <laughs> so um, now Jane Eyre, it did get nominated for a Tony, correct? We got nominated for five Tony Awards, best musical, best yes. book, best score, best lighting, and I think best design. We did not get best orchestration. Larry Hockman got it. I'm spacing the other name of the show that he did that year. And he felt like Jane Eyre, Jane Eyre was the best orchestration he ever did. So, and of course, you know, that year we were up against the producers that not only had their two stars hosting the show and doing numbers from the show, they told us we could only have an hour and 30 seconds. And there was this big, you know, this big controversy at the time. It was kind of crazy, my first Tony Awards. And, you know, we weren't given the allowed amount of time because our show was too depressing. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was very, very strange. Uh, and, and I felt my, my biggest regret about those Tony Awards was Marla Schaffel not winning the Tony Award, which she absolutely deserved. And um, Christine Ebersole, who got her Tony Award that she totally deserved for Grey Gardens, was in 42nd Street for 20 minutes and got the Tony over Marla because half the Tony voters never saw our show. They never went. They didn't want to go see it because they thought it was a downer. That's so there you go. Here, there's my Tony story. Yes, you... I'm still bitter. <laughs> I'm bitter for other people, not myself. <laughs> I didn't expect I was going to get it. And the truth is, is that, you know, I felt the deserving, the, who should have gotten the Tony that year for best score? David Yazbek, man, deserved it for Full Monty. I love that score. I love that show too. Yeah, that is we that. both lost to Mel Brooks and his superb songwriting. By the way, I've lost a, a best score award twice in my life to comedians, once to Mel Brooks and then to Steve Martin. There so, you go. Really? For Bright Star? Yes. Wow. Uh, uh, whatever off-Broadway award yeah, I, nominated oh, the, oh, for. Yes, I lost to Steve Martin. I've lost to Mel Brooks. Wow. Maybe I should have been a stand-up. Maybe, maybe my writing would be better. <laughs> now, maybe, now, if you can beat them for best comedy album. Yes, the, that's my goal. The that's Grammys. Goal. Yes. Great. But you know what? Congratulations on just getting the, the Tony nod. Because that's, you know what? There's so many people out there who don't even get to that point. And, and that's such an incredible experience. I know I know it'd be better if you had won, obviously. But well, just, actually, you know, here's the crazy thing. You know, I mean, yes, it'd be better if I won because <laughs> I would be a Tony Award winner. <laughs> However... Just having the word Tony Award by my name, no, most people think I won. Like they just yeah. see Tony Award, even <laughs> though on my bio it says Tony Award loser in plain English. Um, you know, you say, you know, nominated for a Tony Award and then people conflate it and think, oh, he won a Tony Award. So it's fine. And you know what? It is an honor. And I will always have that. And I'm very grateful for that. And I am in no way belittling it. And it's just humorous to me that, you know, Mel won. <laughs> so so after Jane Eyre what where did you go from there I was devastated so I expected at the very least you know we would run for a year then we tour then I'd be writing my next show but of course the show the show closed we all had to sort of give our royalties up after the first few weeks because you know we didn't have enough people seeing the show mm. and which always confuses me to this date because like the theater looked full to me every night at 70 percent capacity it looks full but that wasn't good enough so um when it closed i didn't have a backup plan i never had a plan b and that was a life lesson 
Um, I, I had this rock musical I'd been working on, but, but nothing else. And, and I had no money. And, and um, I, was, I, I, I was just, I, I stood in a friend's kitchen crying, going like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know how I'm gonna live. And in fact, you know, my life was pretty challenging for the next 10, 15 years financially. Cause I, I went not going back to pop music cause that doesn't make me happy. I just need to keep writing musicals. And so John and I were working on Daddy Long Legs. And, and of course that had almost a 15 year journey to get to, to New York. And, uh, you know, I started working on Emma. I started, uh, the, what I learned is don't put all your eggs in one basket um, because if it doesn't work out, everybody told me how much money I was gonna make on Jane Eyre, how many Tony Awards it was gonna win, how successful. You know, and when you're young and having your first thing, you, you kind of believe it. So I was in shock when it didn't happen. Um, and again, that was a big lesson. And so now I've got like 16 to 20 shows in development. And if one show is not doing well, I look at my other show and I try to have as many income streams yeah. as possible because I know one can just dry up and God, you know, we just all learned live theater can dry up just like that. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, being a theater artist, as you know, is incredibly challenging. It's not for everyone. It's not for the faint of heart. And, and, you know, whether you're successful at it or not is not up to you. So yep. it's just about, you have to do it because you're passionate about it and you love it so much that you don't care if you and your wife only have like $50 to live on the month of December, like some years to just try to get by and, yep. and, and keep doing this so that you can keep writing and, and hopefully make a living. <laughs> there, there are days when I, when I look at my lady friend, she's, she's worked as a school teacher here in Toronto for 16 years. When she retires, she's going to have a pension and all that stuff. And I went, oh, you know, that'd be nice to have a steady paycheck sometimes and then be able to retire. And then I think about it and I'm like, no, I, I'd rather just do what I'm doing. And it's well, just, artists are just, we, we're built different. And we, and we we know what we're getting ourselves into. We know there might be economic issues. We're not, there's no real security, but we love it. And we do love it. But I do think it's time for our industry to, to absolutely change and, and understand that they're not supporting their artists right oh, now no, in no. the way they could be. And, you know, it's just segues into more of what I'm doing with streaming musicals and what I'm doing with, you know, a lot of my fe fellow artists right now is just to try to, to say, look, streaming is here forever. We've just experienced a year and a half of live theater being shut down. There's no reason now to be afraid or to deny that digital theater is here. Yeah. And not only is it here, there's a profound way to change the lives of artists forever with lifetime royalties from streams. Mm -hmm. However, we have to really be diligent and understand what we're talking about when we're talking about digital in, in the context of, of what we're talking about now, because, you know, if we're not careful, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Disney will take over our industry the way they've taken over film and TV, the way Apple took over the music industry. And what that means, just so that we're all clear, is death to royalty holders. 
death to royalty holders for artists. What we have to what we have to be diligent about is when we is when we are transforming our industry into digital. We are not saying that we're not belittling live theater. We we need live theater. This is to supplement live theater, and this is to say we need pay per view for digital, not subscriptions. Mm -hmm. Subscriptions again are the death of royalty holders. Um, songwriters can get millions and millions of plays on Spotify and make a hundred bucks. You know, that's just wrong. I've gotten 600 million minutes of play with my musical Pride and Prejudice on Amazon Prime, and I've made $900. So here's what we need to do. We need to all come together and have a universal streaming website for theater that's Broadway, off-Broadway, community, regional, digital, and have accessible prices, have it accessible around the world, not be limited to how many seats in one's theater or how long the show is playing. It runs forever. This is the concept we're doing in streaming musicals. Yeah. Your show has no running costs. It, it never closes. And your audience is not San Francisco or New York or Chicago. It's the entire world. And imagine if all of these theater artists over the last 10 or 15 years on all these jewel of a show regional productions that were brilliant, if we could see them, if, if, if we could pay $5 to watch them yeah. and those artists would be collecting paychecks that might not make them millionaires, yeah. but would supplement whatever other income they're having, that would totally revolutionize our industry for the better. Yeah. And that's what we're hoping to do. Well, well tell us a little bit about, because um, obviously you're, you're passionate about the streaming issue, the um, idea and, and and probably came out of the pandemic like everything else that we, we've figured out online virtual. So tell us a little bit about some of the shows that you, you've got um, streaming and, and that's what Yeah, I mean, actually, it didn't come out of the pandemic. Oh, what it came out of was Ken Davenport, um, Broadway producer. He was producing Daddy Longlegs. We were doing the show off Broadway. We are not selling well. Um, we're in this little tiny theater. And of course, this is the season Hamilton opened. <laughs> so we're not doing so great. And Ken decides like, hey, what if we live stream the show for free one night? Yeah. What if we have four feeds, um, New York, LA, I'm sorry, New York, LA, uh, London, Tokyo. Um, and I'm, I hear about the idea, go, oh, that's kind of interesting. I'm halfway excited about it, not really. Um, I go see the show that night. There's two guys from live stream with cameras. They've never seen the show before. Mm -hmm. They're just doing it on the fly. So we get home from the show and I'm sitting on my couch and I just say to my wife, like, let's just watch 10 seconds of the LA feed just to make sure we're not embarrassed, just to make sure this looks okay. So we start to watch it and I'm going, oh, this actually looks pretty good. And then I say, hey, this sounds pretty good. This is in 2015. I end up watching the entire show on the couch and I'm mesmerized. I'm going, my show is captured digitally and it looks and sounds incredible. Like everybody could watch this. And in fact, the live stream was seen by 150,000 people wow. from 65 different countries. We got mail after mail email just saying, I live in such and such part of the world. I would have no chance of ever seeing something like this. Please do this. I would pay for this. And I started streaming musicals. 
I went, this is a no brainer. This is stupid that we're not doing this. And, you know, we have spent years talking to the unions, trying to allow us to do this without penalizing us, which yeah. they still do, which it's still not easy to do. And the unions have to shift in order to make oh, this for work. sure. That's a whole other conversation. But so with streaming, I was so, so the first show I streamed was my show, Emma. So the story of Emma was that, you know, it was one of the shows that I was working on after Jane Eyre and feeling like I've got to write something that people will go see. I've got to support myself. And, you know, I loved the story and I thought it was a good idea. So I got the show to theater works and it was a big hit. Um, and then it ended up being done by Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park, St. Louis Rep. But then it kind of sat in my drawer for a few years. Producers tried to bring it to Broadway. It didn't happen. And then the Old Globe did it in 2011. Same thing. Nobody really saw it. Great reviews, sold out performances, everything. Couldn't have been a bigger hit. But, you know, I was I went to New York. Somebody was interested, but it didn't happen. And then the show was just in my drawer. Like nobody was doing the show. Again, tremendous hit, critics financially. Yeah. Um, so after Daddy Longleg streamed, I went, I've got to stream Emma. This is the only way that it's going to happen. But nobody knew what I was talking about. It was like, give me money so that I can film it on a stage without an audience like a movie. That's what I knew I wanted to do. I figured use a SAG contract. It won't be so expensive. Yeah. I can do this for $200,000. Took me a year to raise that money, again, because nobody knew what I was talking about. Um, but we got in there and we shot Emma in 11 days. Um, and, and as the first one we did, I have to say, I'm quite proud of it. Could it be better? Could we have done things differently? Absolutely. But we had all live singing. Um, we had a lot of the cast we'd used over the last couple of years. And we had the DP who ended up going to do In the Heights. Um, so, so what ended up happening after the show sat in a drawer for 10 years is I immediately got a worldwide licensing deal from Music Theater International. And you know, when the pandemic started, we had five productions happening in 2020, um, six productions, five of which got canceled due to the pandemic, but it got licensed. In other words, happy ending. And had the pandemic not happened, all our investors would have made their money back this year from the productions we've had. Now that will take an extra year or two because everybody's just starting up again. But that was amazing to me. And that's exactly what I thought would happen and should happen. So the next one I did was a show that in its former life was called Death the Musical, but is now called No One Called Ahead, um, directed by Tim Kashani. And the people that came to watch the filming of Emma and went, oh, I get what you're doing. Like that I was able to raise the money in one day because people then understood it. Um, and, and then from there, I had my musical Pride and Prejudice at TheaterWorks right before the pandemic. And I wanted to capture Robert Kelly's live production. And so I raised $250,000 while I was at TheaterWorks in like 10 days. Yeah. And that community graciously gave it to me. And I will say that I should have only needed to raise $10,000 to film it but the unions made me raise $250,000 and won't let me extract the songs and release a CD without giving them another $30,000, which that will never happen. But the point is, is that we filmed that 
It's been on Amazon Prime and doing incredibly well, even if I'm not getting a ton of money from it, it's getting branded yeah. and we're getting requests for productions. And when things get back to the world, then one of these major licensing houses will likely want to publish it. So streaming has been nothing but um, a revelation for me. I really enjoy it. And then during the pandemic, we made a Stella Scrooge, a Christmas Carol with a twist, filming one actor at a time, mm -hmm. directed by John Caird, a show that John and I have been trying to do for 10 years. And no region, regionals keep promising us they'll do it, and then they don't. So what did we do? We raised the money with the help of our producers, and we put it on, and now it's licensed by Music Theater International. Um, we're going to release it again this Christmas. We had an opportunity to, to re-edit it this year and spend time on it. So we've made the musical better. We're going to release it, and that makes me happy. That, congratulations uh, on that. You've, you've, everybody's saying that, you know, either it virtual won't work or it will kill theater. I don't know why they think these both these things since it's theater, a, it's live theater will never die. We've been doing it for thousands and thousands of years. It's going nowhere, but this virtual world, it won't kill it. it it's not going to make it bad. It's, it, yeah, like you said, supplementing it. it it's supplementing an opportunity to see it. these shows. You know, and what's been, what I've been really, I've been really glad to see in the last couple of days, I've retweeted it a couple of times, people reminding the world that a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people's first foray, foray into understanding or, or being exposed to musical theater was, was Stephen Sondheim's either Into the Woods or Sweeney Todd on video, mm -hmm. right? Filmed all those years ago. And I remember watching those going, why are we doing this with every show? Like I get to see the show, this is just amazing. And it's just snobbery and fear. You know, when, when the original cast recording came out in the forties, producers tried to shut it down. They thought if people get the original cast recording, they'll never go see the show. And of course the opposite happened. Mm -hmm. Same thing happened in baseball. When the Yankees decided to televise all their home games, all the critics said, nobody will ever go see a Yankee game again. If you just televise every home game, what happened? the opposite. All the kids were like, oh my God, I love baseball. I never knew. Dad, take me to a game. Legally Blonde, you know, a, you know, teetering on Broadway, MTV, you know, comes and, and, and streams it and, 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 and the world can see it. Suddenly successful production in the West End, yeah. you know, has never slowed down in licensing. It's just the opposite of what people think. Everything they're afraid of it's the opposite. They just don't know. And fear stops people from doing so many things. Exposure helps. Like, yep. like now people, like, let's be honest, the West End and Broadway is, is the meccas and, and the whole hubs of theater. But you know yep. what? If you're in Topeka, Kansas, you're in Calgary, Alberta, you're in, you know, S Singapore, you're not going to get to these places. And these right. are the only ways you're going to be able to see it. And let's be honest, if I happen to be in New York and the show is on stage, I'm going to go see it. I, like, right. that's because I've seen right. it there. doesn't mean I'm not going to go see it. Think about all the bootlegs. Right? I know. And that's the crazy thing. We wouldn't have to have these bootlegs if you just let us do it right and let us pay people properly. Yep. Don't charge us crazy prices to film it so that 
making filming it is impossible. Mm -hmm. Let us film it for free, paying the cost of the filming, and then pay the actors and the artists and the musicians forever a good rate, not, not what the unions are saying you have to pay us, which is nothing. Like, I want to give them 40% of the stream. Like, do it. Like, it would change our industry tomorrow. I think we could talk on this for hours and hours. Yeah. You know what? I'd love to have you back and maybe we will yeah. build yeah. more yeah. into it. Um, but please go ahead, ask me more questions about me and writing. And well, well let's, let's, let's finish it off with what are you doing right now? What, what do you have anything in the pipeline? Yes. That, that so I'm doing it. I'm doing a couple of things. Um, I'm working on a show called Stellar Atmospheres with actress Hannah Ellis. Mm -hmm. And Stellar Atmospheres is about um, a woman astrophysicist named Celia Payne, who in 1925 discovered what the stars were made of. Mm -hmm. But she was only 25 years old. She was at the Harvard Observatory Lab, came from Oxford, so she's British. And she made this incredible discovery, but nobody believed her until the professor, the Dean of Astronomy, Henry Norris Russell, made the same discovery five years later. Would he give her the credit? This is a very simple one woman show that Hannah and I are putting together digitally ourselves. And so this is just something fun digitally that, that I'm putting together with an actor friend who I love. So I'm very excited about that piece. Um, I've written a new show called The Gospel According to Heather, which is about a 16 year old girl um, who thinks she might be the second coming, which is really a, a, an inconvenience because she just wants a boyfriend. Um, and I'm having a very exciting meeting about that tomorrow. I don't want to say too much about that, but That's I'm right. excited about that one, uh, developing that. Um, my writing partner on Being Earnest, Jay Gruska, and I are developing that musical that I've been writing for so long called Greetings to Venice Beach, which is about the Venice boardwalk. And, and it takes place in the 90s, in the days of the Rodney King verdict, um, which is the backdrop for that piece. And it's a, it's a rock musical that I've been working on for a long time. So hoping to bring that to fruition. And um, yeah, and Kate Reinders and I are working on a children's musical called A Runaway Princess that I'm excited about and just got a lot of other pieces in development. I'm always writing, always looking for new projects to jump in on. It's just what I love doing. Well, you're keeping busy. <laughs> That's yeah. the important thing. I am, I am for awesome. sure. Well, Paul, thank you for coming on today. And you know what? Anytime you want to come back on and, and talk more about the streaming or if you have if any shows coming up, just let me know. You know That's I, awesome. I've had a great conversation with you and a great time. Now, before we go, I, I always ask my guests three questions just to get them to know them a little bit better. Sure. There's no right or wrong answers, but there might be, you might be judged on, on one of your answers. I love being judged. Nice. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. So question number one. Um, what creator or team within musical theater has had a great influence on you? You know, it could be a composer, lyricist, director, producer, actor, even stage manager. It could be somebody famous, not famous, like a teacher. Uh, is there somebody in the industry who's, you know, had a great influence on you? Yeah, well, I mean, the obvious answer for me is going to be Stephen Sondheim, who, um, you know, I, my friend Debbie Grabit, who won her first Tony Award right after we were high school. We, we went to high school together. 
And we would always get together and we'd always talk about how we were gonna win our Tony Awards. And she like won hers like three years after high school. So I remember having this conversation with her and I had no idea what was happening in New York. Um, and I didn't know about any new musicals. And I said, who are the new musical theater composers? And she went, well, Stephen Sondheim has just written the show called A Little Night Music. And I went, who's Stephen Sondheim? And she went, he's the guy that wrote the lyrics to West Side Story. And I remember thinking, a lyricist wrote the music? That can't be good. So I go out and I get the, the, the LP of A Little Night Music, which I think had just come out. Um, I listened to it and I, I was changed forever. Uh, I, I think I listened to nothing but his music for the next 20 years. I went back and listened to everything he ever wrote. Um, and then just, st I, I don't know, I was just enthralled with him for so long. He is my teacher. He was my teacher. He will always be my teacher. Can't go wrong with that answer. Can't go wrong. So one point, correct answer. So. Thank you. You're welcome. I got one All right. <laughs> Question number two. Now you seem to have a, a penchant for writing musicals based on books written in the late 19th or early 20th century. <laughs> um, is there another book from that time period that you've always wanted to take a look at as well? I mean, honestly, I'm going to tell you the honest truth is the reason that I gravitate towards those novels is that, is that they're in the public domain and you don't need a lawyer or a, a large bank account to start writing. Yeah. So it's not that I don't love those novels and, and it's not that I don't think they're great musicals, but that's the main, my main focus of going for those stories. I'm really looking for something new right now from that period that I want to write. And, and, and what I've come up with, John Caird has suggested Little Dorrit um, as uh, Charles Dickens. It's, yeah. it's one of the lesser known Charles Dickens novels. And I think I'm going to work on that with um, John Caird and David Goldsmith, who's a dear friend of mine, a writer of many musicals. Um, and uh, so that's probably the other... 19th century piece I'm going to tackle. I'm going to give you one and a half points uh, for A, a correct answer, and B, you're saving money. <laughs> it's yes, a, absolutely. It's, saving it's money. Best way to do Thank it. you. Thank you for appreciating that. <laughs> all right. Final question. It might be the most important one of them all. Food in the theater or cell phones in the theater? What is worse? God, I mean, they're both so <laughs> horrendous. Yep. I'm gonna say food over cell phone because the person who, whose cell phone rings at least knows to turn it off immediately while the person that's eating has, is just generally clueless. <laughs> I would have accepted both are awful. You still get the point. <laughs> three and a half out of three, congratulations. Wow. You did great. And, 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 and I was judged. So I had all my favorite things. Um, this has really been a pleasure, like oh, uh, really you. fun, smart questions. I'll come back anytime you want me back, awesome. you know, because I really don't have anything else to do. Because <laughs> all those musicals you mentioned that you're working on. You know, I'm going to do those later in the day. Okay, you know. that's fair. <laughs> yeah, I would love to have you back on. We'd love to talk about streaming more and, and you know, maybe yeah. bring on some other people and, and discuss this about the unions and the streaming <laughs> and because it does nothing but benefit the artists and the creators and everybody involved. There is an obvious win-win scenario for, for sure. everyone yep. that we're not doing yet. For and, sure. But, but hopefully we will. Yeah, I definitely would love to have you back on with some other people to talk about this and, and, and try and figure it out. Maybe we can figure it out for everybody. <laughs> yeah, I'd love it. I'd love awesome. it. All right. Well, Paul, again, thank you so much for coming on and uh, 
My pleasure. Great. So we were just speaking with Paul Gordon here on BR Guest. Tune in next week as we'll speak with another guest or guests about their life, love, and passion that is musical theater. I'm your host, Jean-Paul Yovanov. And until next time, I'll see you when I see you. We love supporting and promoting the creators of musical theater throughout the world. And we would love to have your support as well. Go to musicaltheaterradio.com and click on the Become a Patron button because a supportive community is a strong community.